Welcome to Our Village Circle, a podcast centered around authentic sharing, honest storytelling, and elevating the voices of parents and professionals alike to demystify the realities of new parenthood. We understand on a visceral level that with the joy of your new human also comes every other emotion under the sun. We want you to feel seen, heard, known, and held in this life-altering stage. We wholeheartedly believe that everyone's story has something powerful to offer others as they navigate their own journey. Hi, and welcome back. I'm your host, Jaylee Turner, and today we're going to meet Susie Lewis-Kavinsky, a mom of two and the command advocate for parenthood and pregnancy for the United States Navy Band in Washington, D.C. Today, Susie takes us through how the simple act of writing a paper for her chief indoctrination led to the construction of a lactation room within her command and grew into subsequent years of advocacy within the Navy for new parents. We also discuss the culture surrounding infant feeding, the culture surrounding new parenthood, the changes we've seen in the past 10 or so years, and the changes that we hope to see in the future. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Take a listen. Hi, Susie. Welcome to Our Village Circle. Thanks for coming on today. It's my pleasure. It's wonderful to be here. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your family. I am 44 years old. I am a soprano with the United States Navy Band in Washington, D.C. We are the premier band of the Navy, and so we do a lot of presidential support. I have two children. Abigail is 10 years old, and Evelyn is eight, almost nine years old. And my husband, Jerry, is also a freelance musician and works as a church musician in town. And so that's the fam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you work as a singer for the Navy, but you've actually done a lot of advocacy work within the Navy for new parents. Tell us a little bit about that. It's pretty recent, actually. Our command just created a new position. I'm a command advocate for parenthood and pregnancy is the title. It's CAP. In the Navy, everything's an acronym. So I'm the CAP, C-A-P-P. It sounds like you're the captain of the ship or something. I I like it, right? (laughs) I'm the CAP. So, so just within really the past year and a half, they created that position for me. We hadn't really been doing it, but it's really opened up a lot of new information for me to be able to advocate for parents and for pregnant women in the command. Also, one of our members adopted a child over the past couple of years. And so that was an interesting thing to go through. That was not something I was, you know, even thinking I would handle, but I was a little bit involved in that too. So that position is all throughout the Navy and every month or so I get to meet with the head of the parenthood and pregnancy cap team and they work near the Pentagon. And then we meet with advocates from all over the Navy. So it's all different parts of our country sometimes overseas, we are able to come together and just ask questions, 
relay information that's going on with our members in our command and then brainstorm together solutions, which is great to have that support system. Yeah. And so remind me, how many years have you been in the Navy? I have been in for 16 years. Okay. It's so insane to me to say that number, but that's the truth. <laughs> okay. 16 years. And how long has this cap position existed? It's just been the past year and a half in our command, but it's been going on for quite some time within the Navy. Okay. I think our command just started to recognize that this would be something that's important to have. We have all these collateral duties within our command and we run it ourselves. All the musicians run it with a couple of civilians that help out with like IT and stuff like that. But I think that I got this position because when I was going through chief indoctrination, part of our assignments were to show our leadership skills and show what we would do as a chief. And we were asked to write what's called a point paper. And the assignment is figure out something that you would change in our command, figure out what that would be and how you would find a solution. And so I wrote this detailed point paper about the fact that the women in our command have been forced to pump breast milk in the locker room behind a shower curtain that I brought in actually when I was pumping milk on these pretty filthy, dirty chairs between two sets of lockers. <laughs> and I pointed out all of the issues from the fact that we would have to put our pumped breast milk into the common fridge where people would be opening and closing the door all the time and the temperature variation would happen. Sometimes milk would get spilled because people are rummaging through getting their lunches out. And so I pointed out all of these deficiencies in our command that we didn't have the standard of a room that's separate with running water, all of the standard procedures for what legally we should have. And part of my solution was temporarily using this wanger practice room that hadn't been used actually NCIS had given it to us. They used that as an interrogation room at one point. So it was just in the back of our building somewhere. And I said, for the time being, we can make this a private room. I knew that they had started thinking about plans for actually building a lactation room for the band. And I said, in the meantime, let's close this off. Let's make this private. This can be outfitted with hypoallergenic chairs and a table and a, a dedicated refrigerator. And so that went all the way up to our captain and people thought this is a, actually a really good idea. And so after I became a chief in the Navy, they said, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to take your suggestion and actually make it happen. And so that was a pretty amazing thing to come from really what was just an exercise in my training to something that actually happened and benefited women and will benefit women in the Navy band for all the years to come. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so interesting to hear that there was a time in the Navy where nursing people would have to 
express breast milk in a locker room or like in a random place that you could find because you hear that a lot actually in the performing arts industry. I remember oh, when yeah. just as a freelancer, when I was breastfeeding my son, I've pumped everywhere. I've pumped, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've pumped over a bathroom sink, literally eating yes. Subway during our 10 minute rehearsal break. I've pumped in a random office that didn't belong to the opera company and some random person has barged in. I've pumped in oh, a yeah. closet underneath the stairs. I've, <laughs> I've pumped in a rehearsal room while a rehearsal is going on mm-hmm. in front of men, yep. women, everyone. And so it's such a misunderstood thing, not just the necessity for a sanitary place to pump, but a place to store milk in a sanitary manner because there's all of these best practices for storing breast milk. Exactly. Yeah. Not only that, but also just, I don't know if you experienced this when you were breastfeeding, but there's a lack of understanding. And of course I didn't know this before I was breastfeeding either, but there's just a lack of understanding about how boobs work and how the timeline of pumping works. There's this misconception that it's just, why couldn't you pump this milk before this meeting? Or, and it's so hard to explain, especially to like male Yes, bosses and that's exactly who maybe are not married it'd be like actually yes. do I have to educate you on how boobs work <laughs> <laughs> I know I had two males who did not have children who were my leaders in my group in particular and I had to explain it to them let me tell you how boobs work here imagine <laughs> you really have to pee like you have to go to the bathroom And you're told, oh, you have to wait a couple hours before you can go pee. That was the thing that I told them to explain. I can't just stop having to lactate and schedule it according to your schedule. You Mm -hmm. have to let me take this break or else there's going to be an accident (laughs) and have leakage problems. (laughs) That's actually a really good way of explaining it. And on the flip side, we've both potty trained kids. If you put a kid on the potty that doesn't have to pee. So the same thing goes for, oh, why couldn't you have pumped before work? There is a little bit of a learning curve with how lactating breasts work. I don't know how to really educate the world about that or what. It was something that I had no idea about either. There's still such a stigma about women taking their breasts out to feed their babies in public. And wasn't that there's been recently a commercial. Have you seen the commercial that's come out like showing women? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I was watching that the other day and thinking, wow. We're just now seeing this on television. Mm -hmm. This is ridiculous. (laughs) It really is something that should be normalized. Yeah. So anyway, so because of all of that, I think the command leadership recognized that I have this penchant for women's rights and for trying to do what's right for mothers, because it is such a difficult thing to bring a baby into the world and then be expected to, to go back to being perfect and having everything put together exactly when you're a first time mom you're just learning so much about how to even take care of yourself while taking care of this infant that's always changing and Mm -hmm. schedules and lack of sleep and so I was always very vocal about what I thought was right and it just came from an instinct and back when I had Abby it was in 2010 At that time, it was 
six weeks of maternity leave. Six weeks. I barely was healed (laughs) by that time. And then I could choose to add an additional eight weeks that I would take from my own personal leave. And so I did that because I obviously needed way more than six weeks. (laughs) With Abby, I had preeclampsia. So she came earlier than I was expecting. And it was just a lot of pressure. It felt like a lot of pressure to come back to work, get back into my uniform, (laughs) which that was expected at the time. You are supposed to be able to pop right back into your regular uniform after six weeks. Oh my gosh. I didn't even think about that with the Navy. There's uniforms. So they don't accommodate. They, They do have pregnancy uniforms, but at that time and still now it was looked down on if you came back to work in your maternity uniform. You were supposed to be back into regular pants and yeah, the whole thing. But they only (laughs) give you six weeks to do so. Yeah. And that was then. There have been a lot of great modifications since 2010 and 2012 was when I had Evelyn. But yeah, it wasn't until 2016 that the Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus, created this amazing (laughs) policy that tripled the maternity leave. He made it 18 weeks. Oh, that's um, amazing. Which Mm -hmm. was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And that lasted for two years. And then in 2018 is when the Department of Defense Secretary, Ash Carter, slashed it by six weeks. And so then it was 12 weeks of maternity leave. And that's the policy that is still in place now. So yeah. What about dads? Is there anything for dads when they have a kid? Yeah. And now, and they had called it paternity leave for a long time, but now it's being called second, secondary caregiver to make it more inclusive, which Mm -hmm. I think is great. It had been 10 days of consecutive leave and they could choose when they would take that leave as long as it was within the first year of the birth. And now it's been expanded to 14 days. Okay. And also there's this 12 week policy for primary caregiver leave. You can choose which parent is the primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. If they're both in the Navy, I think that's nice as well because it gives a little more flexibility. Yeah, that's great. So when you had your first baby and you were working in the Navy, what was your experience like? I would say it was really stressful. I had a lot of problems with latch for Abby and I had a difficult time actually just producing milk. And I was very set on, I wanted to breastfeed. I didn't have the birth experience with her that I thought I would have. I had to be induced for that labor and it was really uncomfortable and stressful. And I really wanted to control the breastfeeding aspect of it. And there were times where we had to syringe feed her. I would have to pump in between feedings. It was exhausting. When I finally returned to work, I realized that it would be just slightly over six months by the time I would have to go on tour. And tour is three and a half weeks of time away. And I started talking to my doctor about my concerns. I was not prepared to stop breastfeeding her at that time. And so 
I basically had to get lactation consultants and doctors to write letters to my command on my behalf to, to see if I could be left behind for a tour. And it was a big battle and it caused a lot of strain. At the time, my leader of the unit that I'm in was a female and I thought, oh, she'll just be on my side. It'll be fine. But that wasn't the case. They have a mission and I was part of that mission and the battle continued. Finally, I was given approval by our captain at the time and with a little caveat that if something goes wrong and we need you to come, you're going to have to come. But it worked out and it was great. I was able to stay home and breastfeed Abby. But then I had a not as great experience when I had Evelyn in 2012. I think I burned through some of my cred <laughs> and, or at least their frustration level with my, not demands, it was a request, my request. When I had Evelyn in 2012, it was the same six week policy plus eight weeks for plus two of your own leave for the eight weeks. And at that time I realized Evelyn was going to be eight weeks old by the time we had our next trip, which was to sing with the Boston Pops for 4th of July. So I did not get my request to be left off of that trip approved. So I ended up having to take Evelyn with me when she was eight weeks old to Boston, fly with her and the whole family. And that was really tough. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. What did that look like? They were accommodating in that I was able to get my own kind of suite where the girls had their own room and Jerry and I had a separate room. I had a really grueling schedule where I was away from her a lot. And so at one point I had to pump on a ship in this small office <laughs> and everything felt awkward because I don't like confrontation. I don't like being the person who has to ask for special privileges, or, but I had to pump for her while I was away. And so Jerry was able to stay back and take care of the, the kids in the hotel. Abby was two years old at the time. And so it was a lot on the family, but we did it and we were stronger for it. I, I would not wish that on anyone and it, it would never happen now with the policies that are in place. How long was it between when you had your first child and you were in the Navy and then when you wrote this paper and things started moving in this direction of advocacy for you? I think it was 2018 when I wrote the paper. So so 2010 was when I had Abby, 2012 when I had Evelyn and things like having to pump breast milk on a bus or just like you said, having to pump in some random office with no like, running water nearby, having to pump while other people were near me or getting walked in on at a gig at the beach where our changing room was the lifeguard changing room. And this guy just walks in while I'm there with my pump on. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely been on the receiving end of that a couple of times. <laughs> But now really travel is restricted for mothers the first year. So it's 12 months before they have to travel. So anyone who has a baby doesn't have that pressure of having to leave their baby. Because really that would have ended my nursing relationship. 
Yeah, um, you're right. It would probably would have. Yeah. yeah. And, and even though Evelyn was eight months old, when I went on tour, I ended up pumping breast milk and freezing it in a freezer at a hotel and then shipping it overnight oh with FedEx for the entire three and a half weeks of tour. Um, wow. And that was a huge burden. It's and expensive. expensive. Yeah. yeah. Very wow. expensive. But I was that committed <laughs> or stubborn <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. I know. Yeah. Wow. So I guess a lot has changed then since you had your first baby. In yes. the baby. And obviously yeah. this experience impacted you so much that when it came time to do your essay, this is what you chose to write about. Yeah. And yeah. I imagine this is going to your higher ups and everything. And it is a very bold thing to advocate for yourself in this way. Like what did you go through in the process of making this paper? I wanted to make sure that I had the legal stuff correct. So I did a bunch of research. I found several articles. Also, I'm going to forget the name, but I think it's called Mama Lava. There are these pods. I had seen one at an airport. So I did research on how much it costs to purchase one of those. I researched how much it would cost to purchase the hypoallergenic tables and the fridge and all of the things that I wanted to outfit the lactation room. And I really wanted to present not a whiny perspective, but really we have a duty to take care of our members who choose to be mothers. And, and this is the law. This is, this should be provided. Of course, there were some men who pushed back and said, what's happening for mothers in other buildings in the Navy Yard? And so I kind of- Good question. A, yeah, good question. Probably not great things. So I did a little research and, and found the NAFC building, which was right down the street from us, had a lactation room. All the hospitals had a lactation room. So all the military treatment facilities were equipped Another issue are our band members who would go and play funerals at Arlington. They would sometimes have back-to-back -back funerals, and that could be many hours where basically the place to hang out is a bus. And I think recently we had a mother who had just come back on duty, was doing funerals again, and we were able to have the bus drive her to the military treatment facility where there is a nursing room, wait for her to finish pumping and then drive her back to where the funeral would be. So that's a huge change. That's huge. Um, yeah. yeah. With the paper, it wrote itself really. Once I was able to zero in on here are the deficiencies, here's what we should have, here's the ideal situation. We can't get that right away. So in the meantime, I'm going to have this little solution of using that, that winger practice room and making it a private area and then outfitting it with the things that you would need aside from the running water. So that's the only thing that it didn't have, but it had everything else that you would want in a nursing room. It had a nice light. So it's not an overhead light that was not conducive to a calm environment. I really wanted to make it comfortable for the women that were nursing. And that whole time that, that we had that and the other room was being built in the locker room, we had two women that were utilizing it. 
for the full time. So it was needed and it will continue to be needed. And so when you wrote this paper, did you ever think that it would morph into something that became tangible? I was really hopeful because I recognized after the fact, people were coming up to me. I had to defend the paper, which was a really stressful part of my training to be a chief. And so I walked into this room, we were pulled around all throughout a day. We start off with PT in the morning and then we have to change into a different uniform. And then there's like an interview. You have to pretend like you're on television and you're having an interview and say all the right things about the band. And, and then shortly after that, which was stressful for me, they pulled me up and said, you're going to talk about your paper now. And I walked into the room and it was just probably 30 or 40 people in the room. So all eyeballs on me. And basically they made me defend the paper. And I think I did a really good job. I I showed how passionate I was about this issue. And afterwards, after the whole pinning ceremony was done, people came up and said, that was a really good idea. I really hope this happens. This was a great issue that you raised this is something that is important for our command members and I, I support you. So that meant a lot to me to get that feedback. But yeah, I, I knew it was a good idea and that's just how I am. I know I have good ideas. And so I'm persistent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a squeaky wheel. And so I just, that's you good. know, it gets I, the cheese. It does. So then you wrote this paper and then you defended it and then it basically got picked up and actually turned into a tangible a construction project. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So then how did that transition into you being, what did you call it? The cap. Yeah. Command and advocate for parenthood and pregnancy. And you met, you mentioned that was a thing that it was like a, across the Navy board. Is it just it is, across like yeah. a, across Navy musician? Um, no, um, it's commands or the entire no, Navy. The entire Navy has this duty to the sailors. It became a job that was offered to me in conjunction with another role that I play for the Navy, which is the Exceptional Family Member Program, which is another DOD-wide policy to protect dependents in getting the type of care that they need. If they have For instance, Abby has ADHD, and so she qualifies for this exceptional family member program. It makes it so that if if a Navy service member needs to transfer to another duty station, they will be guaranteed to be transferred somewhere where they can get the medical treatment and medical care that they have. So if someone's disabled, they will get transferred to another location where that disability can be met with the correct type of doctors and nurses. So that's a really cool thing. So because of my advocacy for my children in with the issues that we've had with Abby and with Evelyn, she also has been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. And so we've been in therapy since Abby was five. And thank God, (laughs) because you just, you don't come into this world of parenting, knowing how to deal with these issues. So we've learned a lot. We've struggled a lot. 
we struggle every day still, but we have therapy every week. And my command had to become aware of this because I had a little bit of a meltdown and, and needed some extra therapy for myself. It had been a buildup of years and years of just really feeling hopeless. And so now that I'm part of the Exceptional Family Member Program, I'm able to communicate directly about when we have therapy, when we have psychiatry appointments, and just keep them in the loop so that they can support me. I can get that time off to attend those appointments, which are so important for us to continue to function as a family. So those two jobs just came together, the Exceptional Family Member Program and then the CAP. And they said, we think you're the perfect person to do this. I was like, I think I am too. That's great. And the advocacy was something that naturally arose from you too, just because of your experience. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like I've been a pretty outspoken person in pretty much every area of my life. And I I guess that's just a tendency of my personality. I'm going to be the one who says when I see something wrong or when I perceive that there's an injustice, I'm going to speak up. And these were things that have been going on for years and years. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to see that the Navy has really come to terms with the, the policies and how they impact their service members. And it's nice to see that they have made so many great changes over the years. Yeah. From the time that you began in these positions, what sort of changes have you seen take place? Ooh, I don't know that I would say there have been many changes per se, not in terms of policies, certainly, but I think there's more of an awareness Mm. now. I think that the, the people who have been pregnant in our command in particular over the past few years, there's not this like pressure or stress put on them to be the perfect sailor, always do everything 100%. I can remember even pushing heavy equipment. We have our equipment for our shows and we would be taking these large cases off of a truck and pushing that onto a concert stage or pushing it down a long hallway. And women don't have to do that anymore. They don't have to crew. They don't have to put that stress on their bodies. Did you have Um, to do that when you were pregnant? I did. Yeah. I know. Oh my gosh. I, I know. threw out my hip pushing a dresser the other day. <laughs> I'm 25 weeks pregnant and I cannot even, I can't even imagine. <laughs> no. Yeah. And they're, you know, extremely heavy. And then you'd push it up, a, up an incline and I was just doing it because that's what you do. Right. Of course, at the end of my pregnancy, I wasn't doing as much of that. That was potentially dangerous. So that sort of thing does not happen anymore. There's more of a consideration for pumping schedules. Mm -hmm. For instance, just even asking the question, how can you accommodate? We never got a special accommodation when I would have to pump at the White House, but the past couple years, I was able to advocate for one of our members who is nursing and let them know, hey, we've got this nursing mom. We're going to need a space for her. She's going to need to be able to pump during our time here because we'll be there for hours and hours at a time. And they were accommodating. So even that, I think, is wonderful to see that yeah. we've got people really 
taking notice, realizing what the needs are, and then addressing it. Good. That should be something that's commonplace in the workplace. And unfortunately, it's still not. And I was surprised a little bit by that when I had my baby, how much I found myself feeling like I was a burden for needing to pump. Oh, a hundred percent. Even in the places that were accommodating of it. I just, I felt so self-conscious about it shame there's like yeah there's a shame about it it's like oh I'm so sorry I have to pump can I have a break or can Mm -hmm. I feel like where can I go to pump and I don't think any parent should have to feel that way but it's pervasive in our culture and so internalized yes and we never want to be a burden to others Mm -hmm. we especially as women have been trained to accommodate others and take care of others and And then when we become the burden, that feels shameful. That feels like I've let you down. I'm a burden to you. Now I have to somehow make that up. I think I felt that way a lot. Yeah. And it's so funny because I would never feel that way about another person who had to pump. Even before I had my baby, I always admired the women who were just like, I have to pump breast milk. And I was like, that's amazing. Like you're making (laughs) baby food with your body and you're able to just like get it into a bottle and take it home to your baby. That's so cool. And then when suddenly the tables were turned and I was the one (laughs) having to do it, I just felt so like it was really surprising to me. And I'm so glad that it is something that is becoming more normalized and that you are a part of that effort to really make it a normal, commonplace thing. Yeah, it's great to be able to see the changes over the years. And part of me thinks, oh, I should have another baby so I can take it. <laughs> so you can reap those benefits, but then... <laughs> I'm also, no, I'm not going to go there. In an ideal world, what changes would you like to continue to see in the military as it relates to new parents? Certainly the burden of childcare costs, that is something that we actually get subsidized a bit. It's still so incredibly expensive though, to send your child to a daycare. I would love to see everywhere that we have more of a subsidized system. I think that there could be some changes with regards to that. I think in terms of normalizing the standard of care for women in the military, in terms of the time that they need for the appointments, that still is something that we, we're having to fight about. I think that there's been a lot of changes for the better. The maternity uniforms are actually much more flattering now, which has been great. I think just normalizing what it is to be a mother, to be a new mother, the, the understanding of how hard it is on our bodies and maybe allowing a little more flexibility in terms of scheduling. I think that would be wonderful going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about it with society as a whole? What Oof. sort of changes would you like to see from society and how it relates to new parents? I think just people being comfortable with the fact that if a baby is crying and hungry and you are sitting on the side of a street, you're going to take your boob out and feed your baby. And that's okay. 
Right. You're going to not have to cover everything up when you're already hot and you've got this baby like smushed up against you. It's just, what? come on, <laughs> like at this point in our history, we don't need to be, you know, hiding. This is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And why should we feel again, like we're burdening other people, like we're making them uncomfortable. I, I can very clearly remember this same thing happening to me. We were trying to go out and have an outing and Abby was really young, probably two months old and she was starving. And so I had to breastfeed her and I was hiding in the back of my car with a blanket over me and you're sweating to death. Like it was so uncomfortable. And I felt so much shame just covering up. Then when Evelyn came along, I did not do that anymore. I'm done with this. I am going to whip out my boob and it's going to be okay. People are going to survive. And on the flip side of that too, I've heard the same thing actually from moms who their baby is hungry and they whip out a bottle and start mixing formula. I hear the same, I hear the same thing from them that they get these judgmental glances too. And they get, they get these unsolicited comments from people. So it seems like no matter how Mm -hmm. you are feeding Feeding your your child, someone is going to have something to say about it, which is so silly because it's just like feed the baby. And it doesn't matter. It's your choice. It's what works for the baby. For me, Abby wouldn't even take a bottle. I had to really work hard for her to take a bottle to even go to daycare. And so that was stressful. And here are all the sacrifices that mothers make. And on top of it, you're getting judged for how you feed your baby. No, thank you. Sorry. Yeah. We're going to cancel, no, cul- we're going to cancel culture, all those judges, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it is interesting to me that there seems to be like a stigma, a shame about feeding a baby, no matter how. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And so how has COVID affected the advocacy work within the Navy? Has it taken a pause or what's been going on with that? The meetings are still happening every month. We did have a little bit of time off. And of course, parents are struggling with having their children home all the time and not having the social norms of school. And some people are not not even sending their children to school. They're doing homeschooling for the first time. So those meetings are, are still happening. And for me personally, my work has taken a little bit of a backseat just because we're not together as a full group anymore. We meet occasionally for projects and it's very limited. I actually have a pregnant service woman in my ensemble right now. And I didn't even find out she was pregnant until she was about 18 weeks long. So I was able to send her all of these resources and She actually alerted me to a new mom program that's offered through the hospital, which is great. And they set you up with other mothers that are going to have their babies around the same time, which is so wonderful. I I would have loved to have something like that. So those relationships can continue after you have your children. Oh my Um, gosh. I'm still friends with the women who I met at the hospital shortly after having George. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm really happy for her. In terms of my being able to support her 
I think more of that work will come when we're back together and in person and Mm -hmm. back to more of a normal schedule whenever that happens. (laughs) But yeah, I think that my advocacy does not stop just because we're in COVID times. I'm still learning. I'm still updating our command if there are any changes and if there are new resources that come my way, I'm going to share those with, with the, the members who are having children. I want to be that support system for them. And I want them to know I'm here. I'm here to help and I'm here to support and I've got you. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that you exist in this organization to be that person <laughs> for people who are becoming pregnant, who are having children, who are breastfeeding, who are navigating this whole time. Because right, I feel like that is something that everyone needs is just someone wiser who's been through it, who can yeah. help, especially in those times, like we were talking about earlier with the, I feel self-conscious and like I'm a burden for needing to pump milk and just having someone there to remind you, no, you're not a burden. This is a part of life. And this is something that the Navy could, they accommodate when you have to go poop. Exactly. You know, you're not like, you're like, I have to go to the bathroom. They're not going to be like too bad. Pee your pants. Yeah, exactly. You've got to go. Right. You got to go. You got (laughs) to do the thing. What I said, and I've said to, to several women that have been pregnant past my pregnancies is this is a temporary moment in your career. This is not permanent. This is a little blip on your 20, 24, 30 year career. This should not affect your promotion. It should not affect how people view you. It's just a moment in your life and your career is going to extend far beyond this. Yes, you're going to be a parent for all that time going forward, but you taking the time that you need to properly care for yourself and for your child when they're so vulnerable and so young is just the most important thing. And so- And it serves everyone in the long run. Exactly. Part of the reason that Secretary Carter- made the policy change to give 18 weeks, it it was more in line with more progressive companies like Google, was because women in their late 20s, 30s were leaving the Navy at a much, much higher rate. And in, in terms of retention, that was something that he could offer to help alleviate that. It helps everyone in the long run to give new parents that time. It can help cut back on things like postpartum depression, perinatal mood and anxiety yes. disorders, workplace problems later that might arise from mental health struggles or just health struggles that can occur from not taking the proper time to heal physically from childbirth exactly, or any of yeah. those things. But it is a long-term investment to, to give that time, to give that proper treatment, to give that space. And many of us have learned about the immunity properties that that are offered with breastfeeding. I'm talking a lot about breastfeeding because that's what I did, but yeah, just that bonding that you need to do with your baby. And I really feel like we have a duty to our service members to give them the time that they need to properly take care of, of their needs. And it's going to help with retention. It's going to help with 
happiness in the workplace. It's going to offer the respect of superiors, helps create that respect when you're treated with empathy in such a precious and transitional time in your life. Yes. And I've found myself too, even now, two years out, feeling much happier and much more satisfied when I'm working for those places who I felt respected me during that time. Definitely. What is your favorite thing about this advocacy work that you've been doing? I think that my favorite thing would have to be just knowing that I'm standing up for something I believe in, that I am able to make a small difference or offer some little comfort to the new parents. I'm able to listen to them and know where they're coming from, know what they need in some circumstances, recognizing postpartum depression. That's another thing that I've gained knowledge about Mm -hmm. having been through it. For our listeners, I suffered from uh, perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, and Susie was the one who recognized it (laughs) when I came over to her house one day. I figured it out. I figured you out. (laughs) It's like, you might be suffering from postpartum depression. Yeah, and it was one of those things where as soon as Susie said, do you think you might be suffering from postpartum depression? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but everyone's depressed. And Susie was like, Julie, we need to have a talk. Yeah, that was a very eye-opening moment for you, I think. And then you were able to seek help and get the help that you needed. And that is so important. And I think it just goes back to women feeling like they don't want to burden others or don't want to be the center of attention. I think that's got to stop in in society. We really need to support and recognize how challenging becoming a parent can be. Yeah. And even before I had my son, I had this perception too, that having a newborn was this purely blissed out. (laughs) And it was just because that's what you hear people say. They're like, isn't it so wonderful? Enjoy every second. Oh, wow. That's so, and viewing it from the outside, like I had no idea about the challenges. Like I was the youngest in my family, all my cousins and siblings older than me. So I never really got to, to see challenges before I became a mom myself. So yeah, I think sometimes there can be that perception of in society perpetuates it in the media, in conversations and everything that it is purely a happy time. And there needs to be a little bit more of a conversation around new parenthood in a more holistic sense of it's all of the things that make space for all of the things. Yeah. You go to your baby shower and everyone says, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. And you're going to have this little snuggly baby. And meanwhile, you can't even have a moment to yourself. You can't even make food for yourself or take a shower or go to the bathroom without needing to have this little being on you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's like being touched out is a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There needs to be a little more talk around normalizing it being okay to need a break to need those things and they don't make you a bad parent exactly yeah we have to do what's right for ourselves so that we can do what's right for the child and if that means mommy needs several hours off and dad needs to feed the baby a bottle then that's what has to happen so that you can 
come back and be refreshed and take that time so that you can really care for yourself so that the baby gets what it needs too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What has been the most challenging part of uh, moving into this advocacy work? I, I think for me, it's just that no one in my command had been doing this work before. And so trying to figure out what my path is and what I can change and what might need a little more conversation. I know that a lot of our internal policies, I've taken a look at them. And the, the problem with policies is that if there's no room for gray, then leaders don't have the flexibility of you know, case by case circumstances. And so we have to be careful with what we write down really. So just trying to figure out the right way to get the support that parents need, but at the same time, fulfilling the mission. Our mission is a wonderful mission. We bring music to people who don't always have access to military members to the Navy. Our big tagline is we go where ships can't go. That's, a, that's our talking point often. And being able to recognize that we're working within a structure and that whatever language we use to describe the needs of a parent, making that all-inclusive, which I, I love that's happening more and more now. And taking the time to listen to others to listen to people who have been through pregnancy, who have been through adoption and asking them, what do you think has benefited you? What do you think you would like to change? And so that's one of the things going forward for me, I think I'm going to be focusing on, especially as we get back to normal life, hopefully in the next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been a big push for encompassing all of what parenthood looks like. And mm -hmm. I'm glad that definition is becoming broader among yes. like mainstream culture. I just interviewed someone last week who adopted her child and she spoke yeah. to me about her journey through all of that. And I knew next to nothing about yeah. adoption before having her on. And it's quite yeah, the process. It's quite the process and it looks different for everyone. And it was so eye-opening Mm -hmm. And then also helping LGBTQ couples who become parents, yeah, recognizing what that looks like and how that looks different for people and then single parents, that yeah. journey and fertility treatments. Oh my gosh. Like the, the list goes on and on the groups yeah. of people that need representation. And then there's also women who have miscarriages and the trauma that that really creates in their lives and that that needs to be addressed. And there's not really a great policy right now in the Navy to address those issues. It's another kind of, okay, got to pick up the pieces and move on. And really it, it takes the women who have had miscarriages to go to their doctor to say, I need extra time. I need time to mourn. And that it's that same feeling of, oh, I'm going to be a burden if I do this, or I'm going to miss out on something that I need to be a part of. And really, I really hope that can change in the military and in society as well. Yeah, because these are human experiences. People are going through them every day. Yeah. At the same time, yet people feel so alone because it's not talked about. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to talk about those things. People don't know what to say and understand that, but there needs to be a gentler and more empathetic approach and just an understanding that this is a trauma. I need to process this. It's not going to be an overnight. Okay. I did that happened to me and now I'm over. It's, it could take years and not just for the mothers, but also for the partners. Yes. If that were to happen, you just are suffering in silence, really. It's just not the way it should be. Yeah. I think it's great work that you're doing. Speaking up for new parents and looking for pathways forward to help everyone receive the benefits that they should be entitled to. Do you have any resources that you would like to share with parents or families that would like to know more about how to become involved in advocating for new parents in their workplace or for pregnant people? In terms of resources, a lot of that can be found for military members through the military treatment facilities, from lactation consultants to these parenting groups. That's where I would start, really, because military hospitals have so much that they can offer in terms of the resources that are available. And then I would, for members of the military in particular, make sure that you're communicating with your chain of command, make sure that there's an awareness of your pregnancy to begin with, which is required, you have to to report it, and just keep communicating what your needs are and work with your doctors, work with your nurses so that you can have a safe, healthy pregnancy, be fully supported as a new parent when the baby comes into the world. Great. And lastly, where can listeners find you? Do you have a social media or website or anything? I'm on Facebook and Instagram, CZ Soprano, and I'm working on my, my website. It's not ready yet, but it's suzysoprano.com. It's going to get there. That's my goal this year. Yes. All right. I'll link all of those things in the show notes too. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate talking to you about this and learning more about it. And I'm sure our listeners will benefit too. I'm so glad that I was able to do this. And this is a lot of fun too. Thank you so much to Susie for coming on today. You can find the links to the resources that she shared as well as her Instagram, Facebook, and website in our show notes. Next episode, part one of a three-part series, it's going to be a little different. It's actually going to be just me. I will share with you my pregnancy journey with my first son. I'll talk about the care that I received over the course of my pregnancy and how it prompted me to make a late pregnancy switch from an OB to a midwife practice at 33 weeks, right before I developed gestational hypertension, which unexpectedly led to an early term induction of labor. If you like what you're hearing, feel free to follow, like, and share this podcast with anyone you feel may benefit. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Our Village Circle, and our website is www.ourvillagecircle.com. Until next time, bye-bye.